Welcome to the Forge by Trust podcast. I'm your host, Robin Dreek, former U.S. Marine, spy recruiter, best-selling author, and your trust and communication expert. Today's episode, Discovering the Way of the Hero, is brought to you by my guest, Lane Knighting, and The Way of the Hero. When we eventually reach the end of our journey here, the one legacy we'll leave is adventure. Not vacations or trips or goals, but the rugged adventures that transformed our lives. For those willing to go deep, Way of the Hero offers what clients call an immersive adventure of awakening. Check it out at wayofthehero.com. Coming up next on the Forge by Trust podcast. And immersing in those books down in the bowels of my parents' basement lifted me out of that rural Idaho farm home, flinging me off to ancient Japan or medieval Europe or the jungles of India. And I found myself yearning, Robin. I just yearned someday to experience those. So favorite stories, there's one that asks three questions. And it said, who is the most important person? What is the most important task? And when is the most important time? Welcome to the show. I'm Robin Dreek, and on the Forged by Trust podcast, we decode the interpersonal communication skills of the world's most acclaimed forgers of trust. We unlock the skills and techniques from spies, spy recruiters, master interrogators, globally recognized behavioral experts, C-suite executives, entrepreneurs, acclaimed authors, and thought leaders. Each episode provides specific actions that you can immediately apply to any aspect of your personal or professional life. Today's episode, Discover the Way of the Hero, is with my good friend and inspiration, Lane Knighting. While chasing a PhD, something inside him died. So he went on a wild adventure and came out alive again. Now his mission is to take 1,000 of the world's top leaders who have had a massive loss and felt something die inside and help them come alive again. His wild journey has included married with eight kids, cycled coast to coast in 2009, cycled alone from Portugal to Italy in 2012, cycled Norway with his first client in 2014, cycled 48 countries, many of those with clients, nearly went bankrupt trying to figure all this out. He had $7 left, and he taught innovation for 20 years at Arizona State University and ranked number one in innovation for eight years in a row. He now provides support for companies and leaders across the globe. During today's episode, we talk about if you fear nothing, what would you do? Three keys to life, writing as a tool, and the hero's journey. Lane, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here talking with you. Well, likewise, because you live the saying that I've heard only a few times, but it's a really interesting way to live, and you're living it, and that is if you feared nothing, what would you do? And that's what you do because the way you adventure around the world on bicycles, going to crazy unusual places. Cause I followed you since we became friends and my wife too, cause we're on Facebook together and we're just mm-hmm. always amazed at the adventures you're on. That's why I was so excited, inspired to have you on because you've really taken this to the next level and you're sharing your way of the hero with us, but it all starts from somewhere. And that's where the curiosity really spikes in me. Where did this way of the hero start for you? 
You know, what's really fascinating, Robin, is that if you're attentive, there are guides and signs, almost like the cosmos, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, is as planted these little signs and signals pointing the way. And it, like, if we, we could really go down a rabbit hole, but it Actually, really- I'm, go- I'm going to already, Lane, because you already used a word that really spiked that curiosity. You said, if you're attentive, how do you be attentive? You're still. How do you be still? You know- Because this is really important for people because I, I'm completely in agreement with you. When you live a calm life and you have a calm brain, the path presents itself to you. And that's a really challenging thing, but you brought it up and it's a beautiful way and a simple way to live so that you can have that complete happiness and, and pursue happiness rather than that pleasure. So I'm curious, how do you do that? How did, well, how did you short, do that? Short answer, you get on the bike, you shut off your phone, you shut off all the media <laughs> and uh, serious because a yeah. lot of people, when they're exercising, they're listening to things and and that's important. but. But there are times when we're so busy listening to external things that we forget to listen to our voice, our inner voice, call it the spirit, call it the cosmos. But there's something that resonates when we're still. And I know know for those Christians, one of the big phrases in the Bible is, be still and know that I am God. And What I love about that is it's not a commandment. Hey, listen, you sucker, be still, and you're going to know I'm God. It's rather a cause and effect. If you are still, then you will realize that I am God. And it's not necessarily an external thing. It's like, it's here. It's present. Everything. And I will say that there's only been one time in my life. Robin, where it was so still, like I've, even though I've tried to replicate it, I have never been able to do it, but I did a two month solo trek across Southern Europe, totally alone in foreign countries that I didn't know the language and pedaling along. There was a point at which I was no longer moving. It was like the bike and me were perfectly still and the world was rolling under us, through us. And it was, it was absolutely magical. What was the first time in your life you experienced that kind of stillness? First time? I don't know about the first time. When, when did, or better yet, when did you become more aware of it? When did it start becoming a force in your life? To- Journaling definitely helps. Journaling slows down your thoughts. And, and instead of it being chatter in your head, you get everything down on the page where you can actually look at it and your distance from it. So instead of being wrapped up in it and tied up in knots, you can be aloof from those thoughts. And and be still. So that's, I've been journaling for decades. What was the spark that made you want to start journaling? My dad. Tell me about my, that. Yeah. My dad, dad used to bring us together on our birthdays and he would say, do you want bring, to know? Bring us together. 
Yeah, like our family, our family, he'd gather everybody together and he'd say, he'd open up his old journal and he would say, do you want to know what was happening on your birthday when you were five? Hmm. Yeah. And so he'd pop open his journal and he would sift through, I'm sure some stuff he didn't share, but he would let us know his thoughts and observations about that day and what happened to us when we were five years old. That's a remarkable gift. Yeah. I never, I never thought of using journaling in, in quite that way. Do you happen to remember any of the stories he told? I, I, I just remember that he did it. Wow. And what's really interesting now is in fact, just a minute, I'm going to grab something. Yeah, sure. So I've started reviewing a journal that I I wrote back 11 years ago. Wow. That's a thick and journal. It's a thick journal, right? And I've got scores of these. People sometimes don't understand how to journal or what to journal. So so sharing what they can do to start that process. And I'll tell you, I've never heard a why for journaling quite like that one. That was a great one. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, it, it really is wonderful. Well, I'll get to that. But what I wanted to say was I've lately, as I've opened up these pages for the longest time, and then I stopped the practice, but I would I would write down, um, like you can see here, I don't know, maybe you can see it, but I wrote just one sentence about each child. Right. And said, for those listening and not watching on the YouTube channel, Lane's holding up this beautiful leather bound journal and in cursive, (laughs) yes, the forgotten penmanship of the world. And so he's just describing (laughs) what was in it. Yeah. And let me say that it's better, in my opinion, from all the research I did, I've done and, and the experience, there's a difference that happens between hammering it out on a keyboard and the flow of handwriting. Mm. And it doesn't matter if the spelling is horrible. It doesn't matter if your writing is illegible. Like none of that matters. Right. The only thing that matters is doing it. Because doing it, not only does it allow you to separate your thoughts from you and look at it objectively so you can actually shape it and do something with it, but it, it's yours. Yeah. It's it, you're not going to give this to your English professor. Um, who cares if you if you misspell? Who cares if you have run-on sentences or you pack everything into one giant paragraph? Who cares? Right. Like you're you, nobody's waiting with a red pen ready to scratch it up. And sadly, that's why most people don't journal. Right. What's the earliest journal you have? I think the one that I have now is when I was eight years old. Wow. So you started journaling at eight. I wasn't consistent. Right. So your dad was a great part of this inspiration to do it. Was there any other reason back then? There really wasn't. Not back then. Well, part of it was creative writing. I just loved language and words and they fascinated me. So I wanted to dabble and play and stretch them out and see how they appeared. So the fascination with language and stories that came from an early age? Oh, absolutely. Where'd that come from? 
So that came from two sources. Again, from dad. Dad would. And what'd what'd your dad do? Oh, my dad is like profession. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he was in banking. Okay. This was his creative outlet then. (laughs) So it was. He would actually give loans to farmers. Uh And then he'd have to drive two or three hours to go check on their their farms. And he would just have a book of poetry out on these lonely Idaho roads. And he would memorize poetry. Wow. And then come back and say, gather the family around and say, guys, I got a great poem for you. Sit down and enjoy. (laughs) How many people in the family? There were six kids. Wow. Eventually that like, I'm the oldest. Right. So I really got it early when right. early dad forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mom also read to us. Dad would tell us stories. Right. So we had the gift of verbal prowess. Right. Mom was some people would say more refined. She would immerse in books and then read us stories. Wow. And they kept like this was one of the huge catalysts for my journey. They had a library of books ranging in color from light green to deep blue with, with various gradations of color. Right. And each one had a different level of story. You started from nursery rhymes all the way up to 20 page, 20 or 30 page stories. Right. And immersing in those books down in the bowels of my parents' basement lifted me out of that rural Idaho farm home, flinging me off to ancient Japan or medieval Europe or the jungles of India. And I found myself yearning, Robin. I just yearned someday to experience those. Right. Thought I never, I never would, because I'm just a Idaho farm boy. So that, that wasn't was, my lot. That was a spark of your curiosity all those years ago. Yes, it was. Wow, reading. I'm seeing a trend. There's no doubt. Reading, it really gets the brain going, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I know you know that. So we do this at a young age, eight years old. We start journaling. Where our curiosity spiked from this great reading. What's next? I was a missionary for my faith. And we were instructed to journal daily. I've had a lot of friends that did mission. And when I was at the Naval Academy before that, in the FBI, some of the experiences are incredibly rich, incredibly challenging. Where did you go and how old were you? And what were your responsibilities? Sure. I was 19 years old. Went to the England-Bristol mission, which covered kind of the south of Wales and southwest England. Mm-hmm. and. It, it was very, I would imagine it's very much like the military in that it was very regimented. Right. You're up by 6.30, you're out by 9.30, you proselytize all day until 9.30 at night, you're in bed by 10.30. So describe proselytize. You would go out and meet people. You would tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You would serve them like it. There were, we did a lot of knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. Hi, we're missionaries. Would you like to hear our message? No, thank you. You know, <laughs> doors slam, people flipping us off. And but yet in the midst of all of that. What was that teaching you? I'm sorry, I cut you off right there. No, 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 no. Go ahead. 
these are rich experiences. You are cold calling at a young age yeah. and getting a lot of denials along the way. Oh. <laughs> what were you learning from that experience? I learned several things. One, the value of having somebody to do it with. Right. Because you could at least play off each other and and lift each other up when you need to. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Yes, you had to. <laughs> but I also learned that after the struggle, then a miracle would drop in your lap. What was your first miracle? I don't know what the first one was, but the one, but there was one that was extremely memorable. And we were we were in Neath, South Wales, getting booted out of our apartment, our flat. And oh, my my companion, the one who I was assigned to be with, uh-huh. like a couple of months earlier, he had accidentally flooded the place. Uh-huh. And and then he flooded again when I was with him. And the landlord said, All right, I'm done. You guys are out. And we just felt like we needed to stay there. Like that area had been shut down numerous times because they didn't have a place to live. Uh-huh. And we, we, so we fasted, which is abstaining from food or drink for 24 hours. Right. Went to church, came back on the train, hungry, looked at the cookies, people, other people were eating, you know, on the train and, Hey, let's cut our fast early. No, no, full 24 hours. So we did finish the fast. The very next morning, Robin, this would this just blew me away. We get up, we walk out of our apartment, we're walking down the road. It's you know, 9:30, 9:40 in the morning. And suddenly somebody yells at us. Now that's not new. We get a lot of yelling, <laughs> but right. But but this was a cheery yell, like "Hey, missionaries!" And I looked at my companion. He looked at me. I said, "Do you know her?" "No." "All right." So we just kept walking. She honked again. Said, "Hey, hey!" And are you sure you don't know her? I don't know her. So we kept walking. So she swerved over to the side, jumped out of her car, a little mini Cooper, started dashing after us, waving her hand and going, hey, missionaries, missionaries. And so we stopped, turned around, and she goes, hey, do you need a place to live? (laughs) And we looked at each other. Why do you ask? Well, my father, he lives right over there. And she pointed right across the street and said that he used to have missionaries live with him a long time ago. And now he was hoping to have them back. Huh. And did we need a place to live? We're like, yes. Oh, great. Let's talk with him tonight. And so we did. What a universe. Like, like <laughs> just incredible. Yeah. Truly yeah, is. It is. Wow. So what else did we learn on mission that brought us to the path of the way of the hero? Well, I don't know that there was a lot that I connected back then with it, mm-hmm. except that the heavens were real, that there was something bigger out there, definitely working on our behalf. But later, I did 
I studied stories. I studied storytelling. I understood the performance of identity and how we perform stories in everyday life. But then two things happened. A guy in the storytelling circle that I was in said, Lane, you need to go. And storytelling circle? What's that? Oh, for a while, I was a professional storyteller. What what's a professional storyteller? <laughs> yeah. I mean I got images of wandering minstrels from ancient times. <laughs> yeah, right? Right? Basically, yeah. I would get hired by libraries and schools and occasionally universities and uh-huh. I'd go and perform stories for them. What typical stories would they ask you to perform? Well, they'd be classic folk tales in my own spin or in, did you have sometimes, a there was a couple when I did the coast to coast when my family and I cycled across America, you did that with your family. Well, they, they went in an old motor home, right? Yeah. So they followed yeah. along. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Keep going. Yeah, We'll get to that. <laughs> it's true. Like, absolutely. And that's I why I started this agree. episode with, if you fear nothing, what would you do? <laughs> you, I would be you. <laughs> <laughs> and I would be you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Keep going with the, the professional storyteller. So your favorite story. So favorite stories. There's one that asks three questions. And it said, who is the most important person? What is the most important task? And when is the most important time? Those are great questions. What was the answer? This, I don't know if I should divulge. Let me just tell you that in the story, this emperor wants to know the answers to those three questions. Mm-hmm. And he gets all his advisors and everybody around who, who he commonly you know, leans on for wisdom. And they can't all agree. So he heads off on a journey to go visit this old hermit up on top of the mountain who's supposedly wise. And after a really interesting encounter that is the crux of the story, the old man tells him, I'll I'll try to get his voice. Ah, you already know the answers. I do not know the answers. I've been here walking with you. Ah. But if you would just listen, you would see you know them. And then he tells him that the most important time is always now. Right. Always. The most important person is the person you're with. Right. Because who knows if you will ever be with any other person in the future or with them again. And the most important task is what you do. It's to make the person you're with, the person right in front of you, happy. For that is the task of life. Yeah, absolutely perfect. In other words, it's a it's a tale of being deeply present. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. So we get this beautiful storytelling under our belt of how to connect and share through word 
what's next? So what's really fascinating about these old folk tales is that they migrated all the way around the world. Right. And so you see the similar, the same motifs popping up in Japan and sure. South America and Europe. And, and uh, like one writer said, Stephen Pressfield said, Oh, I love Pressfield. Yeah. I heard that one branch of the military was using his book as a guidebook. Yeah. Naval Academy uses his stuff. Yep. Okay. Keep well, going. there's a great book. It's, not one of his novels, but people have used it as a self-help book, mm-hmm. but it's called Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit <laughs> with an asterisk, you know, S-H asterisk T. Yep. And in there, he talks about the hero's journey. Yes. And he says that the hero's journey is the cosmic story, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you are living it. And Back when Joseph Campbell first identified the hero's journey, mm-hmm. like Hollywood decided to run with this. Well, actually, George Lucas used it, infused it in Star Wars. Right. And people said, well, oh my gosh, this just resonates with us. And so after that, Stephen Pressfield talks about how everybody wanted to know what is the hero's journey of this character in this film. Right. That's fantastic. I think that all of us could benefit from writing. It doesn't matter how feeble our command of the English language. It doesn't matter our, our talents or our gifts, but writing is a way of processing. Too often we think about it as here's a message I want to send to the world. You know, like, First, I think it, then I write it, then I disseminate it. Instead of using it as a tool to right. process, what am I thinking? I have no idea what I'm thinking. So let me let me explore. And as we explore through writing, that rhythmic movement of the hand connects with our brain. And suddenly, we understand things on a different level than we understood. Do you think it's also the tempo? That it slows us down. So we're. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely. I think you nailed it. Yes. It helps us not get caught up in the cult of more. Yes. So we discovered the hero's journey through Pressfield. Right. Where do we Um, take that next? Well, what was before I, I really learned about the hero's journey. Right. I was with some guys who were part of the Renaissance festival, right? Like they, they would come every year and our family loved to go out there and see them. Okay. I'm going to stop one second. I, I want to backtrack lane briefly because you've had a fascinating career of things. When you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? If that was even a thing? Yeah. I wanted to be an actor. Ah, okay. And w- what was that from? I don't know what it was from, except that I knew that there was something within me that wanted expression. Right. And wanted to be in the limelight. Right. Really quickly, I can tell you that one of the motives I had for leaving the university the first time was to go be a full-time storyteller. But as soon as I left the university, 
that desire completely dried up immediately. Mm. No desire to do it anymore. Right. And I realized now it was because from the time I was a kid, I didn't want to tell stories. I wanted to live them. Mm. And that's why I do what I do now. I, I bring in stories into it. Right. You know, into the coaching and into the journeys that we take. Right. But instead, the crux of everything is to help people live incredible stories that they wouldn't have dreamt of. Right. That's fantastic. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. So these guys at the Renaissance Festival struck up a friendship with them and they started talking about archetypes. Hmm. And I know this happens to you. And I, I know that it happens to our listeners, but you'll hear something from somebody and it may be an offhand comment. It may be something you read just a little tiny phrase or a sentence or even a paragraph. And it's like it lights up. And it's like the antennas, the spiritual antennas that are unseen suddenly swerve and go, whoa, that was meant for me. And when they started talking about archetypes, I said, I got to dive into this. I want to know what they are. I want to understand these things. And I, I, I did. There are some standard types, but it doesn't mean that you are that type. Mm -hmm. It means that that's what's flowing through you at this point in your life. Right. Today. Yeah. Today, today at this, this era of life. Right. And as I dove into them, I realized that each archetype has a shadow side. Like it has the negative, the nemesis part of it, the Darth Vader to somebody's Luke Skywalker. Right. And I, as I looked at those Robin, I realized I was living the shadow side of those archetypes. How was that manifesting for you? Well, for one, there's the creator. The creator loves to create, but unless they're careful, they're no, I'm sorry. It's the seeker. The seeker loves to, to go out and find things, but they don't stick to one thing. Right. It's squirrel. Right. And so they're off on a, right. on a rabbit hole. And that was me. I wouldn't stick with anything. I'd get a thousand ideas that I wanted right. to pursue and wouldn't slice it down to one and go after it. What caused you finally to stick? My dad. How long ago was that? Here's, here's how the, the universe works, at least from what I've experienced. Right. For you. You will get. On our journeys, and this is it, this is embedded on all those old folk tales and in the hero's journey. It's that someplace early in the journey, you'll get a golden key, <laughs> you know, or a rusty key. And you have right. no idea what it goes to. And so you right. pocket it and you go along, forget about it. And then then well down the journey, 
you come up against this rusty iron gate and, oh my gosh, I happen to have a key. I wonder right. if it fits and you stick it in. Oh my gosh, it works. And so you open up and go through, whereas otherwise you wouldn't be able to. Right. Well, that's key was when I was 23 years old, he told me, Lane, when I turned 40, I realized it was time to let my dreams go. Now, Robin, imagine for a minute that your hero, the person you idolize and look up to and does no wrong in your eyes, suddenly tells you, Robin, if you don't do it by the time you're 40, forget it. It's not right. going to happen. Right. What would you do? Be a little forlorn, probably. Ooh, plus one. That's a great word. Yeah, I was incensed. I couldn't believe it. It's like dad had taken out a dagger and thrust it in my gut. Sure. But it was exactly what I needed because when 40 came, for 10 years, I had nursed a dream of biking across America. Right. And I looked at all the roadblocks. You're married. You have seven kids. You've got mortgage. You've got student loans. Like, you can't do this. Right. Save, save it to retirement. Right. But my wise dad had planted that story in my head. Right. And I realized if I didn't do it by the time I was 40, I wouldn't do it. Right. And that pushed me to shove aside all those lame excuses that had loomed so large, shove them to the side and figure out a way. Right. And so that led to the most cataclysmic event of my life. What made it cataclysmic? It was my deepest dream. Hmm. Why? Because I wanted to live the life of those minstrels, those wandering minstrels you spoke of, meeting people, sleeping in strange places. And so crawling across the U.S., we met people right and left who flung open wide their doors, brought us in, they fed us, they, they let us stay with them. They would just kindnesses all the way across this, this beautiful country of ours. Kindness is so invigorating, isn't it? Yeah. What, what, what an energy food. <laughs> yeah. Energy food yeah. for the soul, no doubt. Yeah, I like the way you phrase that. <laughs> it is. Well, it, it was amazing. What was really amazing is that the last two weeks, I had to go on alone. My wife drove back to get the kids in school. And every single night, Robin, every single night, I stayed either in somebody's house or somebody's yard. Hmm. Every night. Did you knock on the front door and say, hey, I'm Lane. Could I use your yard? Yeah. You do? yeah. Yeah. So I, so the years of being a missionary really helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a great connection. I hadn't connected that, but yes, you're used to cold calling and, and inserting yourself in someone's life that might not want you and you're used to being rejected. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You had a lot of reps. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. What were your key takeaways that you learned about yourself? One that 
I had lived angry and hadn't realized it. What were you angry at? I think I was angry at feeling like I was in a cage. What cage did you put yourself in? I I think I think we all live into the stories that other people plant in our heads. Mm. That he, you know, it's like we're handed a script. Here's the way you live in the world, and so you follow the script, and it doesn't always fit your role. And there were a lot of things about the role that I'd been handed that didn't work for me, but I still lived into those because I thought that's what you did to be a a good dad, to be a good husband, to be a a good man of faith. That's what you did. How did you rewrite your script? That journey rewrote it. Adventure is the ink we use to rewrite our story. What'd you do from there? So, you know, Robin, I, I, I felt deeply that I needed to take this to other people. And I'll tell you, I'll get a little vulnerable here, but we had a, our youngest daughter died in my arms on a Sunday afternoon. She was only five and a half months, four and a half months. Sorry. Oh my gosh. But she was born in a broken body. And so we, she was an angel. Like I'm going to just use our vernacular. She was an angel sent from God to teach us and to help us discover beautiful things. She only needed to live a short time to gain a body and leave her message and leave. You know, I just read something that was really profound by uh, Nick Dot Han, the uh, Buddhist monk who recently passed. And he talked about this when a child passes and he gave a reverse context. The beauty that you saw in it is profound. And he said, you realize that child lived the most perfect life they possibly could have? Because all they knew was love unconditionally mm. for that time of, on the earth that they had. That's pretty profound. That is profound. Well, you can feel what I would call the spirit of a person. You can feel their energy. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you got to feel a lot of that in your tenure where you could, you got to the point where you could, you could sense people's vibes every day. Yeah. Through a great conversation. Yes. <laughs> well, she, she had a magnificent spirit. You could just feel it. Right. The night before she died, I was struggling with the heavens, wondering, you know, in my prayers, what's next? And I was led through a process where I needed to think about all the dreams that I had, all of them, and write each one down on a little note card. What led you through that process? You said you were led through a process. Yeah, I was pleading with, pleading in my prayers, what's next? What do you want me to do? And it's like this vision unfolded in my mind that said, here's what you need to do. And so I, I mean, it was really like a voice in my mind. And so I took these note cards and wrote a dream on each one. I want to, I want to go skydiving. I want to have a Ferrari. 
or Corvette. It wasn't a Ferrari. You know, I, I, I want to go see the Taj Mahal. And each one I wrote down and I had this stack of dreams and said, okay, this, this voice in my mind said, now pick them up two at a time, keep the greater, discard the lesser. So I did. And that what, def- what defined what a greater and a lesser was. See, that's the beauty of it. I had to, as I picked them up, I realized this was an incredible psychological activity to go, why, why is this my dream? Right. It's not. That's part of the script that I've been handed. I, I don't want a Corvette. Like it'd be fun to drive once, maybe a few times, but after that, I'd like, I don't want to go fast. Hence the cult of more. Yes. And so eventually, Robin, I ended up having two stacks, a pile of discards and a stack of keepers. And this, this voice in my mind said, okay, now do it again with the stack. And so I kept whittling away at it. And I realized as I looked at these things like a mansion. I don't want a mansion. I mean, that's just more to clean and have to upkeep it. Like, forget that. And when I got down to the last one, I it shook me to the core. What was it? It was cycle every country in the world and make my living through that. Now, Immediately, Robin, up jumps all kinds of fears and wonders like, you know, that's a lot of countries. <laughs> yes. How in the world are you going to get to the far-flung islands of the South Pacific? You know, those those little dots on the map that, that nobody goes to. Like, yeah, sure, right. they go to New Zealand and Australia and, and Hawaii and, and they're other ones that are renowned, but, but what about Kiribati? What about Vanuatu? Solomon islands. Right. Like I'd never heard of these, but the pursuit of that dream has created more crazy, wonderful stories than I could be like ever fathomed as a kid. And I've realized that, that childhood dream of living the stories I was reading has come to pass. How many countries are we on now? I'm at 48. How many left? There's 197 according to the UN definition. So figuring out how to do the rest is part of the journey. <laughs> yeah, part of the game. Cool. So tell me about the hero's journey. Tell me about what you do. So what I do is I help individuals and teams lose themselves in the journey and find their team in unity. I help people. That's what I do with teams. I do those regionally. The international ones are more focused on the individual Mm -hmm. and they're to help people who have suffered a massive loss, awaken, experience an incredible awakening. Wow. How did you learn to do that as part of this journey. You have the cycling aspect, you have the logistics aspect, and then you have the 
experiential aspect. How did you bring that together? A lot of reading, a lot of a lot of what I learned in the PhD program, fusing it into the magic of of cycling. Like so let, let me just tell you that the journey itself is three phases. Most people miss out on at least one of those three. First of all, it requires equipping yourself, training, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And so we, we do a lot of journaling in that. Right. We, do, we read about the hero's journey. We learn about incredible people like Shackleton. And then two, we take the journey, but we do it in a way that most people don't. Tell me what's different. Yeah, what's different is we haul our own gear. We condense our entire lives down to what fits on the bike. And that's with us. Right. And that's all that's with us. For how long? We'll go for seven to 10 days. And what's great about the adventure and the way we do it is that even though we see some of the tourist hotspots, we see the nooks and crannies right. that most people bypass. Right. And what's great about the journey is that the people on the journey, they have no idea whether you're a CEO or a janitor and right. they don't care. The great equalizer. Yes. All they care about is how are you showing up right here, right now? Presence, right? Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. So what's the third thing out of those three? So the third thing is that what I think is the most important part of the hero's journey, and that is the return. Mm. The return phase is the, the great distinguisher between an epic journey and a trip. Mm. A vacation, a trip, you'll go on, hey, it was fun. You, you know, you might have a, a rack of photos to show people. But it doesn't change it to the core, and you don't start guiding other people who are just beginning their journeys. Right. And, and the other part is, when you've experienced an epic journey, there's a clash when you get back. All the people you know and love think of you as the old person. Right. And they try, like a tractor beam, to pull you back into your old skin. Right. And you got to fight that. How do you and fight say, that? One is you declare it. You say, look, I've changed. And you enroll them in your, your ongoing evolution of growth. And then the second thing is you tell your story, not stories, not multiple things, but the one central pivotal thing that made you shift. Hmm. And do it in a way that is about the other people. It's not about you, but it is about the shift and how your listeners can also experience that shift. Lane, who typically comes on the hero's journey? Not cyclists. <laughs> Good. Like most of the people aren't. They have been, the reins that we've had so far, they've been CEOs, they've been entrepreneurs, they've been homemakers, they've been 
people in law enforcement, people in business. Like there's been a a wide range. Anyone. Anyone. I'm I'm narrowing the target now where now I'm focusing on teams. You know, it could be a family. Right. But primarily teams that that can see their team's capacity, but they don't know how to unlock it. Oh, that's good. And individuals like high-level CEOs, entrepreneurs that are are just beaten down with stress and need the kind of escape where completely unfettered from all the tentacles that try to pull them, right? They can get clarity and be still. Nice. Lane, we could go on for hours. <clears throat> What's something I didn't ask you that you wanted to make sure you shared that I forgot to get to? The question that I would invite you to ask is, what is a journey? What's a journey? It doesn't have to involve physical movement. It doesn't have to be geotagged from place to place. It's anytime we feel a beckoning to leave whatever comfort zone we have and do something beyond that. It's a great journey. Yeah. Lane, where can people go to find out more about the hero's journey and how they can put you in their lives in a great way? I would love people to go explore wayofthehero.com. It is a mm-hmm. beautiful website, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. We just added a few extra tweaks. So I'm nice. I'm going back again it. then right after this. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, thank you for the privilege of being part of this magic that you make. Uh, it's it's all you. Having beautiful people like you on sharing their inspirational stories, tools, and techniques for living a healthier life for themselves so thereby they can live it better for those around them. It's an honor and privilege. Lane, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And everyone go check out his website. It's a beautiful website, lots of beautiful places. Anyway, thanks a lot, Lane. Thanks, Robin. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Forged by Trust. If you took away at least one new idea, make a note of it and pass it on to someone else who may need it. If you're interested in more information about how I can help you forge your own trust building, communication, and interpersonal strategies for yourself or your organization, please visit my website at www.peopleformula.com. I'm looking forward to sharing my next Forge by Trust episode with you next week when we chat with Danny Fontaine and creating emotional connections.